Beans and fucking toast, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it looks like I killed her. I'm already crying. Hello. (laughs) Hey, I was just trying to start a conversation, man. I was just trying to kill you. (laughs) Uh, Fucking, well, hello, everyone. It's, uh... It's me, it's Morgan, and this is the eighth episode of Morbid Millennial, where Devin is again not featured. Unfortunately, she's still not feeling that well. So again, we have Ashley on, our unofficial third member. Woohoo! My voice <laughs> is not nearly as soothing, so I apologize. It is plenty soothing. We love your troll bitch voice. Ha ha. So... As I was trying to say before you <laughs> cried laughing beans. at my totally serious introduction. <laughs> beans and fucking toast, my dude. This topic was a lot. Yeah. I So this fortnight, I am bringing you a true crime story. And it is one of my favorite. And actually, Ashley, I may have told you about this before. At the very least, I have brought it to your attention in the group chat where I talked about what the potential best serial killer in 2020 would have to be like. Oh, my God. That fucking rant you went on. I was <laughs> honestly concerned. You're on an FBI watch list. I... <laughs> Do you want to tell everyone about it? It must be so much funnier coming from your perspective. God, it was late at night. And like the group chat's going off and I'm like, okay, what, what bullshit are we going to look at today? <laughs> and I pull it up and she's just like, guys, listen, I figured it out. I have all the answers. And we're like, oh <laughs> my God. And she just goes on like, it would be so much easier to commit a murder back before all the technology that we have. <laughs> and she just went into depth about like today in order to murder somebody, here's what you have to do step by step. And all of the bases you have to cover. And I was like, Morgan, it's like 2 a.m. You can't, I mean, you can, but on Snapchat, like you're on an FBI watch list. Listen, considering my Google search history, I'm probably on there for much worse things. I mean, yeah, we're all writers. We have to think about like how to creatively kill somebody it's- or like how much force you have to put for the back of a hammer to go through someone's skull like exactly but you <laughs> you covered all the bases listen well if you wanted to know where i got the inspiration for that beautiful rant and by the way no i'm not a socio a sociopath is that um, is that a mix of a socio and a psychopath that's a different mix that's accurate <laughs> a little bit uh <laughs> but no i am not dangerous i just watch too much true crime because I was sick a lot growing up and 60 Minutes was my favorite fucking thing. That, you know, that's fair. That and CSI. Loved CSI growing up. Oh, of course. But so I was actually watching a Netflix documentary of which I did use for this week's notes called The Ripper. Ah, okay. Highly recommend you watch that. It is really good. That, and that was why I got into such a mindset Because the way it was portrayed really just made you think about all the facets of the case and just about how 
how far we've come in terms of uh, technology in true crime. Like today we have uh, DNA that we can track down the Golden State Killer from decades old DNA or from other people for his relatives. Actually, interesting fact about the Golden State Killer. My boyfriend, my sweet, lovely boyfriend, his aunt, I think it was his aunt, was his neighbor. Oh, shit. She lived right next to the Golden State Killer. And when that shit was uncovered, she had to rethink her entire life. I can't imagine. Holy shit. See, this is the kind of stories I want you guys like writing in and telling us about. I want to hear if you live next to a serial killer for too long. That would be so interesting to hear about. And all of the trauma that comes with it, please. I yeah yeah. Trauma circle. Let's, let's get go. Your, yeah, let's get your story out, man. Like, I mean, at least the very least, at, at at the risk of not sounding like an asshole, um, it is cathartic to share stories like that to find you know you have, uh, common threads among people who may have shared a similar experience. So it is really interesting. I'm not just here because I'm crazy. Although we do know that is a little bit of the truth. <laughs> yeah, we're not feeding off of your misery. It's it's a trauma circle. We're all holding hands together and being sad and then feeling better afterward. Straight up. And plus like it's really nice to to talk about these things too because it does help you like become more familiar with your surroundings, familiar with the world you live in, makes you helps you become smarter or at the very least helps you become more of an advocate for this kind of thing. So that other people don't have to uh, suffer a similar situation. Right. Like, this is a story, Ashley, that I know is going to make you so mad. Oh, God. Here we go. Because just of the tropes and just of the fact that this is a classic case of police fuckery. Oh, bring it on. (laughs) I'm full of rage and ready to go. Oh, well, it is it is almost three in the morning, so I hope you are full of rage. I am always full of rage. <laughs> Especially during the witching hour. It's the witching... <gasps> this is so proper. I'm sorry, I got excited. <laughs> Anyways. Too bad I don't have a paranormal story for you this time. We might have, like, started getting some paranormal activity going. I mean, oh, God, I don't need any more of that. I mean, in a haunted house, that's just what you're gonna get. <laughs> Before I start the story, I will say that I will be jumping around a lot. (laughs) And by that, I mean, I'm just going to be hitting you back to back to back with information. And some of that is because this story that I'm telling you about, I, I could make and there are already podcasts, entire podcasts about nothing but this case. I could go into every single victim, their personal lives. I could go into the perpetrator. I could go into only how the police handled things and who these people are and why they handled them and how DNA works and all this stuff. I could do all that. I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to be hitting you with bare facts, uh, anything I could find. For some people, there are caveats to this case where... Things may not line up exactly about, oh, well, that person wasn't murdered by him. This was another person. I'm just going off what I have found at surface level. If you know more about this and you probably do, uh, I'm sorry if I get uh, some things off. I am doing my best to 
be succinct and be as informative as possible. And with that, let us let us begin. Let us. <laughs> I have to throw some lighthearted shit, man. This is about to get dark. Oh, here we go. My mind is a blank slate. Let's do this. Oh, I can't wait to ruin it. <laughs> From 1975 to 1981, one man terrorized North England, eventually becoming known as the Yorkshire Ripper. He committed more than a dozen vicious murders, seven assaults, and wrote mocking letters to the police while they hunted him. His victims were mostly prostitutes, but he was indiscriminate with his attacks, also brutally attacking young women and workers out late at night. His preferred M.O. was to strike the victims with a hammer blow to the head and drag them into the shadows to sexually assault, rob, and mutilate them sometimes leaving bite marks and even rearranging their clothing and shoes before covering them with their coat. His attacks left 23 children motherless. More than 300 detectives worked around the clock for three years, costing more than 4 million pounds and 2.5 million police hours until a final arrest was made. This is the story of Peter William Sutcliffe. Wow. <laughs> I worked hard on that intro. Glad I got you all in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be horrified or interested. Or This is uh, Dateline, Morbid Millennial Edition. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight on 60 Minutes. <laughs> so, some background. Sutcliffe was born on June 2nd, 1946 in Bingley, West Yorkshire to John and Kathleen Sutcliffe. For those of you who remember uh, Devin and I's previous rant about Geminis, Sutcliffe is a motherfucking Gemini, so we know how this is going to go. I'm a Gemini rising. But you're a Scorpio. We love you. Okay. And you're a double Scorpio at that. <laughs> you're the truest bitch around. Oh, shit. <laughs> Suck on that, Peter. <laughs> so... Sutcliffe grew up with young with younger siblings, two brothers and three sisters. And as a teenager, he was considered a loner with voyeuristic tendencies. His father was a known alcoholic, and despite their staunch Catholic background, he did not respect his wife. Although Sutcliffe loved his mother, he never did take a stand against his father out of fear of retaliation. Well, that's kind of an unfair thing to put on a child. Like, it doesn't mean you don't love your mother. Just means you're a child and you're scared. Oh, for sure. I'm about to change your opinion, though. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this eventually changed in 1970 when his father accused his wife of cheating on him, insulting her in front of the entire family and forever changing his son's view of both his mother and other women, as now in his eyes, all women cheat. This was later backed up by his persistent patronage of prostitutes, some of which conned him out of his money, leading him to a particular disdain for this specific type of woman. Sutcliffe dropped out of school when he was 15 and took up several jobs, starting out work in a factory and a mill, eventually working his way up to gravedigger for the Bingley Cemetery in 1964. This was a job that led him to working part-time in a local morgue. Friends of his at the time would remember that he constantly bragged about stealing from the deceased that would pass through his workplace. And he apparently really loved, you know, looking at the corpses when they would come in. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I 
I know, not a great start. In 1966, he met his wife, Sonia Surma, and the two married on August 10th, 1974, but never bore any children. It is worth mentioning, he was getting prostitutes from the time he was a teenager till well after he was married. Yeah, I would believe so. Yeah, knowing what he eventually ended up doing. And this is also partially speculated that uh, his wife did at one point cheat on him with an ice cream vendor. Oh, no. I mean, sexy, sexy ice cream man. But like this also made <laughs> made him think like, oh, great. If I ever needed further proof, my mother was a slut. And now so is my wife. Damn. So really not helping his psyche. Probably made him go after prostitutes more once yeah. he found that out. I mean, yeah, cheaters are fucked. Oh, uh, for sure. If you cheat on anyone, I hope you get found out. Straight up. You're hearing it straight from Morbid Millennial. <laughs> it wasn't until 1976 that he found a job as a truck driver, of which he was considered a trusted employee all throughout his murder spree. As is the case with most serial killers, Sutcliffe did not immediately just begin killing people out of fucking nowhere. Things first began in 1969 with the assault of a female prostitute whom he had met while searching for another woman who had taken money from him. He was out with a friend and stated in later interviews that he got out of his friend's minivan and headed up the road until he was out of sight. When he returned, he was out of breath and told his friend to gun it. Sutcliffe stated that he had followed a prostitute into a garage and hit her over the head with a stone in a sock. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It's, a, it's ridiculous. It's like, why did you... Why that... <laughs> Of all things. I mean... He even gave a quote about it. The force of the impact tore the toe off the sock and whatever was in it came out. That's that's what he noticed? <laughs> My, I, I just noticed, like, whatever was in it. Well, I assume it was a fucking stone, my like dude. the rock. <laughs> rock sock. I need to add that to me. <laughs> rock sockster. <laughs> The woman did end up reporting this to the police who were able to connect Sutcliffe to the attack based on his friend's license plate. But Sutcliffe claimed that he had hit her with his hand. And due to the fact that the woman was a prostitute and wanted nothing to do with the incident, no files were charged against him. Damn. The second assault happened on the night of July 5th, 1975 in Keeley. The woman, Anna Rogulski, was walking alone when she was suddenly struck with a ball peen hammer and her stomach was slashed with a knife. Fuck. <laughs> you y'all wonder why women don't like to walk alone at night. Oh, I can't wait till I get to that part of the story. Oh, fuck. <laughs> You're gonna be so mad. I'm already getting mad. <laughs> Good. And it's just gonna get worse. Yay. So under fear of being disturbed by a neighbor. He left without killing the victim. Rogulski survived this attack, but was left with severe psychological trauma after the incident. Well, yeah. On August 15th of the same year, Sutcliffe attacked Olive Smelt in Halifax. In a similar fashion to his previous attacks, he engaged the victim in small talk about the weather before striking hammer blows to her head from behind. 
He again was interrupted and left Smelt behind, but not before slashing her lower back with a knife. She, like Rogulski, suffered severe psychological trauma from the incident. Smelt did file a police report about the incident and even stated that the man who attacked her had a Yorkshire accent. But this information was ignored. Ah. <laughs> police fuckery number one. God damn it. And it's going to get worse. <laughs> On August 27, 12 days after the previous attack, Sutcliffe attacked 14-year-old Tracy Brown, hitting her from behind five times as she walked alone down a country lane. He ran away once he saw the headlights of an oncoming car, leaving Brown requiring brain surgery to survive the attack. Jesus. This, like subsequent others, was never a charge of which Sutcliffe will be convicted of, although he will eventually confess to the attack. What? How does that work? So basically, I mentioned earlier, there were over a dozen murders. And there were several uh, assaults that happened. And at some point, the the trial just kind of looked at it and went, what's the point of connecting more to this? We're already going to have him on so much there's no point in charging him in extra things when we've already got him. I mean, for justice's sake, I guess. That's exactly what I, I think about, too. Like, it's not really fair in terms of, like, justice's sake, but in terms of, like, saving money on lengthy trials that'll just keep coming out, uh, I can kind of get it. Yeah, I guess. Now we get to where he has finally amped up his, his attacks. Oh. The first victim Sutcliffe successfully killed was 26-year-old Wilma McCann, mother of four. She was killed on October 30th, 1975, and she had been struck twice with a hammer, stripped, stabbed several times, once in the throat, twice under her right breast, three times under her left breast, and nine times in the navel. Type B blood semen was found on her body. An extensive investigation around the discovery of her body was undertaken, but the West Yorkshire police were unable to find the culprit. It was assumed at the time that this was some sort of pimp violence, not the work of a serial killer. Oh. In later interviews, Sutcliffe would state that after this killing, he began to develop and play up his hatred of prostitutes in order to justify his attack. Yeah, the whole, like, stabbing under the breast and then in the navel, like, that's, that's very... I hate women. And the fact that it increased as well. Yeah. That that's very meticulous for no reason. And I will say this now, the part about uh blood type B semen. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have DNA like we were familiar with. It was very much in its infancy at the time. So whenever they found DNA, what they would do is they would find a blood type from it which would significantly narrow down the pool of people you'd be looking at, especially for rarer types like blood, like B and O, things like that. You could narrow it down to thousands of people rather than millions, for example. Right, that makes sense. But it still wasn't enough because that is still such a large pool of people. They didn't have much to go on. So that's why they were unable to find the culprit, even though they had DNA evidence of some kind. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a huge step, but just not quite. And there's more and more like that, that he does not just leave his DNA at the crime scenes. It wasn't until Sutcliffe's next victim that police were able to understand that McCann's murder was part of a darker nightmare. The body of 42-year-old Emily Jackson, mother of three, was murdered on January 20th, 1976 in Leeds, Yorkshire. She had prior been persuaded by her husband into prostitution and was picked up by Sutcliffe outside the Gaiety pub, only to be driven about half a mile away to derelict buildings. She was struck on the head with a hammer, dragged into a, a rubbish-strewn yarn. Yard? Yarn? Yarn? Yard. Okay. I mean, maybe yarn strewed. I don't know what was in that yard. <laughs> and she was stabbed in the neck, chest, and abdomen with a screwdriver more than 51 times. Dear fuck. I've told Devin this before, and I'll tell you and everyone else this. That's fucking insane. Yeah, with a screwdriver. Oh, was Stabbing it? is a lot of work. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> this makes it sound very trivial i'm not trying to make it sound less than it is but this is rough shit man so let me try and make some funny thing out of it <laughs> that's some intense fucking cardio bro <laughs> you like you have to stab through so much especially like in the chest area yeah, I have to break through the like the sternum and like the ribs the you ribs. have to be glancing off bones yeah you're going through very thick muscles not to mention the fact that it's not just like, you know, stabbing the air. It gets caught. You have to pull. You have to push it back in. It's a lot of work to be stabbing people. And I've told Devin before, it's like, I would never do that much work. <laughs> That's so much work. Yeah. I will not stab anyone nor dig a grave because it is too much work for oh me. Oh, my God. I, I'm so, way too lazy. I can't even clean my room. I mean... We're in my room now. You see what it's like. <laughs> oh, mine's worse. <laughs> but like, so anytime I see attacks like this where it's just so many stab wounds, that's rage. That's a, yeah, that's a lot of hate behind that. Yeah. So. And also, this is, <laughs> this is such a dumb question. Was it a Phillips head or was it a flat head? It was sharpened actually. <gasps> okay. Because if it was... That would be so fucking hard with the flathead screwdriver. Yeah. God. I, I imagine it was, uh, you, you know, tools. Help me. <laughs> the Phillips. Thank you. The, As, I knew the word, but I was like, that feels wrong. I don't want to be, I don't want to be <laughs> correct here. I know no tools. I know artistic tools, not, not turny, turny engineer things. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's, we're coining that. <laughs> TM TM guys, they're turny turny engineer things now. <laughs> Fuck you if you say otherwise. <laughs> so he stabbed her with a turny turn. <laughs> I can't. Anyways, continue. That would make Dateline so much more entertaining. <laughs> so before he abandoned her, he stomped on her right thigh, leaving an impression of his boot behind. Damn. Much like McCann, she had also been robbed and sexually assaulted. Well, of course. On May 9th, Marcella Claxton was walking home from a party in Round Hay Park, Leeds. Sutcliffe offered her a ride, and she accepted. When she got out of the car to urinate, he hit her from behind with a hammer. 
Claxton was able to, to survive, but had been four months pregnant at the time of the attack and subsequently miscarried her child. Ah. She required multiple brain operations and still suffered from depression and intermittent blackouts due to the attack. God, that poor thing. I would never say it is better to be a survivor or a victim because you're a vi- you're a victim either way, right? But the the impact that one man can leave like this just just from a bunch of anger that is so misplaced. Yeah, anybody really, man, woman, like God, that's it's so crazy. Yeah, and the impact of this is crazy. I don't go too much into it, but like the way this was handled by police, it affected not just the people who were victims in the case, but the victims' families. And some of them were not able to handle everything in the long run. They were, they just, some of them ended up committing suicide because of the legacy that their family had in this case. It's so sad. And that's, I want to fight. I want to fight. That's also why I'm mainly focusing on the victims too, rather than focusing on Sutcliffe because fuck him. Yeah. Fuck him. Like we know enough about him. He's a Gemini. He adds, he has mommy issues and he has a lot of rage he and a he's a weirdo. Whiny bitch baby. Yeah. But yeah, that's why I'm just throwing names at you. I'm not just going into the gruesome as- aspects of the murders for shock value. I'm going into it to say more about him and what he does to people for no fucking reason. Yeah. On February 5th, 1977, the body of 26-year-old mother of two, Irene Richardson, was found in a park in Leeds. She had been killed with three blows to the head. Her stomach was ripped open with the claws of the same hammer. Her innards removed, her throat cut, and her body was arranged particularly shoes to the side with her coat draped on top of her. Now let's talk about fucking, like, effort. Like, you ripped her open with the back of a hammer? Yeah. And the thing, too, that is kind of conflicting, but really interesting from a criminal, like, psychology point of view. He covers their bodies. He's ashamed. Yeah. He's wanting to cover up what he did. That makes sense. I mean, fuck. You think about it, like, you go through all that rage and then, like, the clarity afterward, you're just like, ah, fuck. And he was aware that the police were slowly noticing what was happening. He wasn't an idiot. And the fact that a lot of this was so premeditated, and I will get into that too, not too much because I'm not going to give this asshole any more credit than he deserves. Right. But he does adapt. And that is the case with a lot of serial killers who do have a higher body count just like at the beginning where he was attacking women and escalating the severity of the attacks until he could start experimenting with what exactly he wanted to do to these women. Right. It's, it's not good. It's not a good look. It's not cute. It's not. Killing people isn't cute, guys. Don't. don't. <laughs> I mean, if, if you needed to know, it's not cute, guys. <laughs> 
Unlike what would be portrayed in the media, Richardson was not a prostitute. She was poor and unemployed, but she had never engaged in prostitution. And that was the fucked up thing about a lot of the media coverage is they only portrayed Ripper victims as prostitutes. Hmm. Which really... It's unfair. It it made it hard to accurately see what was going on. Because if you just assume, especially at this time, because it's pretty common in tropes like these with serial killers to attack people who society views as lesser. Prostitutes are usually one of those people. Homeless people are another. But people are people. You can't, right. you can't just say, oh, well, they're just prostitutes. If they weren't living the life they have, this wouldn't have happened to them. It's their fault. Right. Nobody's expendable. Nobody deserves to have this sort of thing done to them. Exactly. And as, as I stated in the beginning of this, it was never about prostitutes. Yeah. It may have been about women, but mm-hmm. never necessarily about prostitutes. Yeah. Two and a half months later, on April 23rd, 32-year-old Bradford prostitute Patricia Tina Atkinson, mother of three, was found brutally murdered and mutilated in her flat in Bradford, where a boot print was left on the bed sheets. Atkinson had been sexually assaulted and her body bore all the typical signs of the Ripper. This was a case that freaked people the fuck out. Because unlike everyone else, this was in her home. Yeah, she was like home. So this meant to police that this wasn't just somebody who was picking people up, who was, you know, out on the streets. He could come to you or at the very least was smooth talking enough to convince you to let him close. Yeah. That made him more dangerous, especially since at this time they didn't have a a proper visage of him yet. Right. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. Two months after the attack on Tina Atkinson, on June 26th, Sutcliffe murdered 16-year-old Jane McDonald in a Chapeltown playground near her home with similar traits to all of the previous Ripper victims. She was not a prostitute, and her murder was one that convinced the public that the Ripper would attack any woman, regardless of social status. The police even went so far as to describe her as the only innocent victim. Wow. It was around this time that the media had begun to use the moniker the Yorkshire Ripper in order to put a name to the faceless villain of the streets. It was at this point that Assistant Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, George Oldfield, was placed in overall command of the Ripper Hunt, which probably wasn't the best decision. More of a power move than a a, a, a good choice. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Uh, from this point, it seemed he wanted to, you know, show off more yeah. than really solve the case. Oh, you'll, end up, you'll end up seeing what I mean. Nothing was, at, at least to me, nothing felt very specifically like they were hunting down this this nameless faceless person it became more about well i'm going to solve it because i'm chief constable i hate that mentality and yeah so 
On October 1st, 1977, Sutcliffe murdered Jean Jordan, a prostitute from Manchester. The state her body was in puzzled police, as it appears as if her body had been deceased for about a week before discovery, in addition to the fact that her body had been pulled from a double hedge to expose it. Sutcliffe would later say in a police interview that he had realized that he had given her a five-pound note that could possibly trace him back to his workplace. Oh. So he returned to the wasteland behind Manchester's Southern Cemetery to retrieve it, but when he was unable to find it, he moved and further mutilated her corpse. Uh, why? Anger. Oh, you don't have the thing that I left because I'm dumb. Fuck you. Well, uh, at, this is a cool thing I noticed in the documentary is they were saying generally for prostitution services, uh, a five pound note was like a typical cost. Right. And he didn't know where she put it. And so after he killed her, he thought... Oh, fuck. Because that that five pound note was new. Oh. So when he went up to try and find it and he couldn't find it, he got angry at her. Like it was her fault. For outsmarting him or something. And I mean, not even outsmarting him necessarily. Just thinking like, of course. And, and this sounds really harsh, but I'm just getting into the mindset of of him because he's so angry especially at women for no reason especially with given his history of just like oh of course another fucking bitch steals my money yeah that i mean that makes sense yeah it's so when the body was discovered it was discovered by a local dairy worker who was searching for bricks for his nearby allotment and the five pound note was found in a secret compartment in her handbag Oh, police were able to trace bank operations in Shipley and Bingley and interviewed 5,000 men, including Sutcliffe, who had a credible alibi for the night of the murder, claiming he was at a family party. God damn it. Weeks of investigation went by with no luck in tracking down the killer, despite the great clue the note provided them. And in the meantime... Marilyn Moore, a 25-year-old prostitute, survived an attack by Sutcliffe and ended up providing one of the best photo fits of the suspect from a known Ripper victim. She had been picked up by Sutcliffe and he had tried to bludgeon her to death after asking her to get in the back of his car. Both her screams and a barking dog persuaded him to gun the engine and speed off into the night, leaving Moore unconscious but alive. She had been hit eight times with a hammer and had bruises on her hands where she tried to shield herself from the blows. She gave a description of a large, dark-colored or maroon vehicle similar to the description of Sutcliffe's red Ford Corsair. Hmm. The tire tracks at the scene were consistent with the tracks found at the Irene Richardson murder scene. And even though she was able to give that photo fit... It was never added to the case. What the fuck? You bitches. Police fuckery at its finest. God. Ah. In the year 1978, Sutcliffe's mother died. And due to increased awareness that the police had begun to follow him, he began to change his approach to, uh, to his attacks, staying away from red light districts and instead calling prostitutes to other locations. How does that work? Like, 
DoorDash a prostitute? I mean, I don't exactly know how uh, prostitution in the 70s worked. (laughs) But generally, I could imagine, like, you know, hand off your number, like, hey, meet me at at this location this time I got you, you know? That's a lot smarter than what I fucking said. Oh, my God. (laughs) I just embarrassed myself. Not you good. I'm I'm probably just as much of an idiot as you do. We share the the same half of a brain cell, so. You're right. We're two halves (laughs) of a whole idiot. Hell yeah. Devin's the smart one. Uh, Devin, see, you are the smart one. This is why we need you on the podcast. We miss you. (laughs) Get better soon, bitch. (laughs) In January 1978, the search for the recipient of the five pound note was discontinued. In the same month, the Ripper killed again. This time, a 21-year-old Bradford prostitute named Yvonne Pearson was found dead. He had repeatedly bludgeoned her with a ball-peen hammer, then jumped on her chest before stuffing horsehair in her mouth from a discarded sofa, under which he hid her body near Lum Lane. Wow. That's... Escalation, right? Yeah. I was reading that and I was like, oh, oh, Jesus, okay. All right, then. Ten days later, he killed Helen Ritka, an 18-year-old prostitute. She was found hidden behind a pile of timber in a wood yard in Huddersfield. She had been struck five times on the head before being stripped and repeatedly stabbed in the chest. Sutcliffe later stated in an interview, I had the urge to kill any woman. The urge inside me to kill girls was now practically uncontrollable. Because, you know, he's he's a little fucking poor me, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, could, I couldn't control it. Yeah, I couldn't help it. <sighs> Pussy ass bitch baby. <laughs> I like how this episode feels like I might have to mark it as explicit. <laughs> you're saying a lot of good things in here. I love it. Listen, you're the one who decided to make me angry. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I actually didn't make this decision knowing that you'd be the one listening. I thought this would be a, a Devin episode. So like when I was like, oh, my God. I get to tell Ashley this. This is going to be great. (laughs) Oh, God. She's going to hate this. I hate it so much. (laughs) On May 16th, 41-year-old Vera... On May 16th, 41-year-old Vera Millward, mother of seven, was found in a car park at the rear of Manchester Royal Infirmary, bearing all typical signs of a ripper attack. On April 4th, 1979, 19-year-old Old Society clerk Josephine Whitaker was found brutally murdered in Halifax near her home. Her body had been partially covered by her coat and caused widespread fear since this victim again proved that the Ripper would kill any woman regardless of status. Despite forensic evidence present, the police were distracted for several months by a taped message sent to the police taunting George Oldfield. Oh, the man himself. And this is the video that I told you at the beginning of this that I would love to show you. So take this. Okay, let's hear this. Give it a listen. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? 
The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown when I was disturbed. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. I'm not sure where. Maybe Manchester. I like it there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the Ripper. The fucking balls on this man. <laughs> He's like, mm, I have some respect for you. <laughs> he even sounds like a little whiny bitch, baby. So, based on linguistic evidence, police were able to narrow down the accent of the speaker to the Castletown area near Sunderland. Two letters were subsequently sent claiming responsibility for the murder of Joan Harrison. This was a case I don't believe I mentioned. And that's because it wasn't necessarily linked to this case. In some it was, in some it wasn't. This was one of those cases where it was like, well, this was technically a serial killer, Billy Tracy, who was the real Yorkshire Ripper. And Peter Sutcliffe is just a copycat. It it spirals a bit. So mm. I didn't include her in the story. But uh, the police at the time falsely believed that this was not public knowledge, even though the case was. The media wasn't exactly good at keeping these things tight-lipped. This tape was publicly announced, and the letters were shown during a press conference with Oldfield confident that they were from the Ripper, and he used the media as free publicity campaign in the case. Oh my god, that's what he used it for? Spoiler alert. The tape was a hoax. Oh, as well as the letters. In 2005, DNA was taken from the envelopes and matched to one John Samuel Humble, an unemployed alcoholic and longtime resident of the Ford Estate in Sunderland. His DNA had been taken during a drunk and disorderly offense in 2001. He was later charged with attempting to pervert the court of justice and was convicted in March 2006 and sentenced to eight years in prison. This is getting too close to modern times. Oh, yeah. And it's going to get closer. You're going to be very uncomfortable with how close this got to present day. Oh, my God. I, it's funny because I know very little about this case as much as I know the name Jack the Ripper. It, it makes me so uncomfortable and it's so recent. See, and I will mention this, too, because you said Jack the Ripper. They are not the same. Jack the Ripper was a serial killer in... So, I highly recommend this book to you. I have it if you would like to borrow it. And I do recommend it to all of our listeners. It's a really interesting read. It's called The Invention of Murder. And it pretty much starts with the Jack the Ripper case. This was pretty much like the first time humans had ever really had a serial killer who was just stalking the streets of London, ripping women to shreds for seemingly no reason. And that was why they really heavily leaned on the prostitute aspect because Jack the Ripper only targeted prostitutes. So they assumed this was like an, like an homage to the original Jack the Ripper. We don't know who that was. 
Jack the Ripper's case was never solved because it was way before DNA. Yeah. And all they had to go on back then was hunches and eyewitness accounts, which don't really help. Eyewitness accounts aren't necessarily very reliable all the time. Right. And so the Yorkshire Ripper was the case around the 60s, 70s, and 80s in which Peter Sutcliffe was the the perpetrator. There are a lot of different ideas as to who the original Jack the Ripper could have been, but we just don't know. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I was... (laughs) I, I, again, I forget to include stuff sometimes and I love it when people bring up shit that I, I know, you know, (laughs) I know a thing or two about that. It's like, oh my God, I know things. This is great. (laughs) What's that like? It's so bizarre. (laughs) On September 1st, 1979, Sutcliffe kills again. The body of 20-year-old Bradford University student Barbara Leach was dumped at the rear of 13 Ashgrove under a pile of bricks, close to the university and Leach's lodgings. Despite the false lead of the tapes and the letters shown in the media, Sutcliffe was again interviewed on two other occasions. Even though he matched several forensic clues, such as the boot print and the tire tracks. Right. And he was on the list of 300 suspected names in connection with the five-pound note. He was not strongly suspected. In total, Sutcliffe was interviewed nine times by police. Ah. And to make it worse, (laughs) although he was suspected within this small group of people, Sutcliffe remained out of the police's reach even despite the fact that at one point in the late 70s, he was caught with a hammer in the back of his car. He managed to talk his way out of this encounter, and every time police were aware that he was a suspect in the case, but always released him due to lack of evidence. Lack of... Ah! Right? Isn't that infuriating? You at least have something, like, on this dude. What do you have on the other dudes? A lot less! (laughs) In April 1980, Sutcliffe was arrested for drunk driving. While waiting for trial, he murdered two more women. What the fuck? 47-year-old Marguerite Walls on the night of August 20th, 1980, and 20-year-old Jacqueline Hill, a student at Leeds University, on the night of November 17th, 1980. Hill's body was found at a wasteland near the Arndale Center. Walls was found in a high-walled garden, having been strangled with a rope and covered with grass clippings and leaves. Odd. I know. It's a, that was a very odd murder. A part of me thinks that was maybe he was rushed, perhaps. Maybe. Uh, because he, he, she was strangled with a garrote, so tightened. Right. And that's usually not his M.O., considering he's really a fan of the, you know, bludgeoning and the stabbing and the... Right. Maybe it was just like an off day. Like, I'm just not feeling the rage today. Or it also could have been an attempted escalation of some sort, just trying something out because strangling is a lot more personal than stabbing is. That is true. It takes a lot longer. Much longer. In addition to these women, he also attacked three other women who survived the attacks. A 
I'm so sorry. This name always trips me up. <laughs> Upadhyaya? Upadhyaya Bandara in Leeds on September 24th. Maureen Lee, an art student in Leeds on October 25th. And 16-year-old Teresa Sykes in Huddersfield on November 5th. On November 25th, 1980, Trevor Birdsall, the driver of the minivan, if you remember, during Sutcliffe's first attack in 1969, finally filed his first attack and reported Sutcliffe to the police as a suspect. However, the information vanished into the paperwork that had already accumulated. God. Fucking damn it. <laughs> and I will explain more about this because that part, I can at least say, wasn't just complete police negligence. I did mention how many hours were going into this investigation. It's not like they were all just twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, I get that. But that's a big lead that just got lost. It's a huge lead. But you'll understand what, why I could at least let that go. Remember, this was a time without computers and a time where uh, police departments didn't exactly share information very willingly or cleanly with each other. It was kind of like a big dick competition of just like, no, I can solve this murder because it's in my county. Jesus Christ. That kind of, you know, bullshit. Mm -hmm. So... Finally, I give you a reprieve. The time has come. Give it to me. On January 2nd, 1981, Sutcliffe was stopped by the police with 24-year-old prostitute Olivia Reavers in the driveway of Light Trade's house in Melbourne Avenue of Broomsfield, South Yorkshire. A police check showed that Sutcliffe's place were false, and he was arrested and transferred to Dewsbury Police Station. Later, police returned to the, seat of the, to the scene of the arrest and found a discarded knife, hammer, and rope that Sutcliffe had tossed when the police permitted him to use the toilet before being taken away. Hmm. Sutcliffe had also hidden a second knife in the toilet cistern at the police station. Wow. After two days of intensive questioning by the police, Sutcliffe admitted he was the ripper. Weeks later, he claimed God had told him to murder the women. Of course. Quote, the women I killed were filth, he said. Bastard prostitutes who were littering the streets. I was just cleaning the place up a bit. Oh, well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no. I love your reactions to me getting cinematic, reading, <laughs> reading serial killer quotes. Loving it. Sutcliffe only displayed regret over the youngest victim, Jane McDonald. You know, the one true innocent victim. Oh. <laughs> During the trial, he stated himself that he was surprised he had not been caught sooner, but multiple factors contributed to the delayed response by police. One issue had been the sheer quantity of information. This is also why I highly recommend that documentary to you, man. They show you videos of what they were dealing with. So many index cards were filed with, pro with possible leads on the case or potential information about suspicious characters, all of which had to be individually processed and filed in rooms with reinforced floors to support the sheer quantity of information. Okay, this was in, so this is where most of the police hours went. You can see videos of these women at these 
this is not the right, <laughs> this is not the right word. Rotundi? Like rotate. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the right word. <laughs> Rotunda. Uh, no, like just these index cards on a circuit. That's a, probably a better way yeah. to describe it. Let me use the brain cell I do have, I swear. <laughs> the half. But just rotating these index cards all around, all segmented. People would be calling in daily, nightly, hourly saying, I believe this person is the ripper. Okay, well, why do you think that? Let me write down your information. We'll get that followed up with, with a police officer. And it would be given to them and returned and then filed away under whatever it would be. And that's why all this information would just kind of go down a fucking rabbit hole. There was so much that they couldn't even properly process it because they didn't have computers to do any of this with. Yeah, it was I guess. all handwritten, individually processed. Yeah, that sounds painful, I will say. It's scary to look at. Like, ooh, highly recommend this documentary. It was such a good watch, guys. I might watch it tonight. Well, maybe you not should. Tonight. <laughs> I mean tomorrow. Tonight, tomorrow, whenever you can. It's on Netflix. So, in addition to the sheer quantity of information, the fact that most of the women were immediately considered prostitutes rather than women of equal value as anyone else in society meant that the police were unable to con- to keep up an initial sense of urgency and meticulousness that would have meant a quicker conclusion to the crimes. That is so fucked. Right? Instead, and I meant, you said this at the beginning, and I couldn't wait to get to this part. Instead, police urged women to not engage in behavior that could potentially make them a target, such as being out at night without a male escort or drinking alone. Hmm. Are you familiar with the take back the night walks? Yeah. That's where some of this started originating, because people were pissed yeah that that was their answer to a man attacking women indiscriminately right because it could be any of them as far as they knew yeah why why would an escort be any safer than a stranger right when you don't know who it is it's like the the argument like like yeah not all men but we don't know which men yeah and not only like not only that like a man doesn't have to worry about getting attacked right but we have to worry why should we have to change our behavior like it it, it's a, a big feminist movement yeah uh and especially during the time you can watch a lot of uh news reports during this time of just women walking the streets picketing like they were very against this whole thing and honestly yeah. there was those are some bad bitches yeah honestly because it's like why tell us to protect ourselves more why not tell men to be like hey hello stop <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, like maybe don't be a twat that makes the rest of us look bad yeah exactly like a bad apple doesn't have to spoil the whole bunch but like you gotta Put some effort into you it. You gotta shame like, that fucking apple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I gotta get giggles as much as I can, man. This shit's dark. It is. It's depressing. And it's probably a sensitive topic right now. For sure. Yeah. Even during the trial, 
And oh, this made me so mad. A prosecutor kept up the pretense of labeling the victims. Quote, some were prostitutes, but perhaps the saddest part of the case is that some were not. The last six attacks were on totally respectable women. Ah, I want to fight this man. Where is this man? <sighs> right. Is he dead? He better be dead. I hope. Well, I hope so. If not, it doesn't make up for it, but I'll get to it. <laughs> As well, police refused to listen to the information given by living Ripter, 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 <laughs> Ripper victims that their attacker, uh, <laughs> Ripter attacker. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me, man. We're keeping that in because that's honestly funny. Uh, basically, that the attacker had a Yorkshire accent, and they also ignored the photo fit. That was the most accurate. Uh, image of them of him that they had at the time and they completely ignored it because she she said he had a Yorkshire accent and they just assume can't be him wow and this was all because of the weight that was thrown onto that hoax ripper tape mm. they just assume no we have we have his voice and he's in Sunderland he can't be he can't have a Yorkshire accent that's annoying. Oh, like people can't move to different places. Mm. I mean, it's not just moving to different places. It's uh, linguistic tracking. Yeah. So like it. I'm not. This makes me this makes me sound like I'm belittling your intelligence. It's kind of <laughs> like how we all have different accents in the States. Yeah. Same thing all over all over England. Yeah. People will have different accents from Sunderland to Yorkshire. And it's not that far a distance. Right. And it's really hard to fake those accents sometimes. I mean, like, you hear me doing peel-off accent, and I can do it pretty reasonably, but, like, I doubt I could fool a linguist, you understand? Right. No, I get it, yeah. But, yeah, it was just such a, a flippant disregard. It, I, watching that documentary just made me so mad. <laughs> Sutcliffe was charged on January 5th, 1981, at trial, he pleaded not guilty to 13 charges of murder, Jeez. but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Oh, because God made you do it. Exactly. He claimed that due to the fact that he was only a tool of God's will. And he said that he heard voices commanding him to kill prostitutes while working as a grave digger. That's always the excuse. The voices told me to do it. Oh, I'm. it gets worse. Sutcliffe also pleaded guilty to seven charges of attempted murder, and the trial judge rejected expert testimony from psychiatrists pleading for diminished responsibility. This was potentially based on evidence from a prison officer who heard Sutcliffe tell his wife that if he convinced people he was crazy, he might only get time in a quote-unquote loony bin. Hmm. So based on the fact that that might have been a premeditated angle on top of the fact of just how much terror he inflicted on people for so long and how much anger and rage that those murders had to have you know yep so trial judge is like you know what you sir can fuck off good if <laughs> <laughs> someone got to say it right god listen i wish I wish that we're allowed to say in, like, 
in the middle of a trial because that w- might just be worth, you know, becoming a judge over just so I can tell that to someone's face. We need a Judge Judy. <laughs> God. <laughs> judge Judy on steroids, you mean? <laughs> uh, more on speed. That'd be hilarious. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the trial commenced on May 5th, 1981, lasting two weeks. And despite the effort of James Chadwin, Sutcliffe's defense, which God bless that man, by the way, <laughs> can you imagine we're going into your office one day and going, sup, man, we got a case for you today. Oh, cool. What's it going to be? You're fucking kidding me. <laughs> you are fucking kidding me right now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so despite his effort, God bless him. <laughs> He was found guilty on all murder counts and sentenced to 20 concurrent life sentences. Jesus, as they fucking should. And that's that's what I meant to like, why tie him to these extra assaults and potential murders if they already have him on 20 life sentences? Yeah. But still, it's it's sad. It's kind of like it's hard to look at it from an outside perspective just because you're like, bad man do bad thing to good people good people deserve justice for sure but it's a lot deeper than that yeah especially considering that you and i know nothing about uh <laughs> a goddamn ju- thing the ju- well yeah but especially <laughs> the judicial judicial system like i can't even say it right see that definitely was, i can never become a judge because i can't even say the word <laughs> so the minimum sentence allotted to him was 30 years as the death penalty was unfortunately an abolished practice since 1965. Damn. There are some times where I'm against the death penalty, but then there's assholes like this and it's like, mm, no. Yeah. Nah. Ugh. Hot like, takes. Yeah. <laughs> I may be a spiteful bitch, but I have mixed feelings about the death penalty. Uh, yeah. And honestly, you should, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be just one straight answer to be like, oh, death. It's, like, that's not your decision to make. Yeah. Just have some humanity about it. Just yeah. know you don't always know all the things. Right. And whether you believe somebody deserves it or not, like, it kind of reflecting back onto the, like, prostitutes aren't, quote unquote, like, innocent people. Like, that was the decision that people made mm-hmm. th- themselves. Like, that's not necessarily true. Exactly. So, like, you can't, you know, unless it's someone like him. Yeah, I <laughs> get it's it. Like, And at the same time, I also do get why England, of all places, was like, maybe let's not do that. Yeah. We got a long history of executions and shit. <laughs> maybe let's chill. Let's chill a little bit. <laughs> you know, just, just, for, just for now. Just this once. So I did mention uh, Sutcliffe's wife earlier. In 1994, Sonia Surma filed for divorce. Only after all that. And that's that's the I mean, props to her. She did support him throughout the trial and she did visit him while while he was incarcerated. But like I said, in 1994, she filed for divorce and she no longer visited him after her second marriage in 1997, which good for her. Yeah. Like fucking upgrades. Uh, upgrades, my man. <laughs> Oof. 
Sutcliffe ended up being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and he was removed from prison and transferred to a secure psychiatric facility called Broadmoor Hospital. He applied for the right to parole, but a 2010 ruling declared that he would never be able to be released, and was even declared mentally able to return to maximum security prison in 2016. Whoa. Sutcliffe died at University Hospital of North Durham, age 74, on November 13th, 2020. Stop. Stop. (laughs) What the fuck? I just got goosebumps. He was sent there with COVID-19 and in addition to complications of obesity and diabetes, he refused treatment. His body was cremated with a private funeral ceremony. Oh my God. He died of COVID? Not necessarily of COVID. He had other issues. He had like a previous like heart attack. Right. And it was said that once he got into hospital, it was just like, why, why fucking treat me? Like, yeah. Why? Uh, only after the death of Sutcliffe in 2020, which sounds so weird. I love that I got you with that because that was me too. I was like, whoa, like, what? What? Oh, that, no, I don't like that. <laughs> that makes it closer. I don't like it. <laughs> Only after his death did a police constable issue an apology for the additional distress and anxiety caused to all relatives by the language, tone, and terminology used by senior officers at the time in relation to Peter Sutcliffe's victims. As you should. But it's it's a little too little too late, fam. Yeah, it's a shame it took him that long, but it's like, okay, well, at least... At least he did it. At least someone did it. Yeah. Damn. Damn. I <laughs> do you want to see a picture of Peter Sutcliffe? I do. I don't believe I showed it to you earlier. No, I can. I can show you both his like actual picture and the photo fit that they ended up drawing of him. It is pretty like scary accurate. So this is Peter Sutcliffe. Oh, whiny bitch baby. <laughs> He's not exactly what you think. Thought what well, you think he would look like, no, right? He looks like a little weenie. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looks like someone I would have gone to college with, which sounds really weird, but I was in an art program. So yeah. a lot of people liked that whole vintage look. Yeah. Here, I will also show you pictures of some of his victims. Generally in chronological order there. Oh, wow. That, like, hurts my heart a little bit. Right. It, I feel it's always important to, like, put a face to the name. So oh, I'm, 100%. I'm not just throwing them out there. Yeah, so they're, they're seen. Yeah. And let me find the photo fit for you in here. This was the photo fit drawn by the victim. Oh, shit. That's scary accurate, right? Whoa. And it was ignored. What in the actual name of fuck itself? <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot, but God. Oh, no, you're good. It's like, that's how I felt, man. I, I, like, seeing this, like, researching it, it's so infuriating. God. Even, like, the shape of, like, his hair. Like, oh, I'm angry. <laughs> angry. Angry. <laughs> but, yes, that is the story of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Yorkshire Ripper, not Jack the Ripper. Not Jack the Ripper. He did, in, in the letters, 
and in the the audio clip, I I feel like I heard Jack. The yeah, they uh, he named himself Jack, but that was specifically what they ended up calling the hoax ripper was the Wearside Jack hoax. Gotcha. So similar thing, but was not uh, Sutcliffe himself. Gotcha. But yeah, I will eventually get around to Jack the Ripper because I have to. That's hell yeah. That's the OG <laughs> serial killer. You gotta. That's the boy. <laughs> and it's one of those really like disturbing cases because it just seems so brutal for no reason and shocked a lot of people because they weren't unlike <laughs> unlike us in today's society. <laughs> they were not used to that level of brutality yeah. for no reason. Right. Like if and talking about it too i could probably bring it up and you'd be like oh i mean this is a terrible thing to say but it's like oh that's all <laughs> it's like yeah that's knowing all, me and that's all he did yeah it's like i just told you about a a serial killer who accomplished 13 murders and seven assaults i could tell you about a potential topic i would love to talk about him andre chikatilo over 50 murders jesus i I could tell you about so many people with really high murder counts and that's just so numb to us now because we all follow true crime, right? Like podcasts and shows. And it's just like, okay, yeah, murder is just a fascination to us. But at the time when that was novel, it wouldn't take a large body count. It was any body count. Yeah. Like you gotta like actually think about it. Like look at somebody and be like, I could take your life. Like, no, that, that's a bananas concept. And like, uh, I don't know if I ever got you listening to this. I do recommend it to anybody who likes the true crime, wants a little more like specific stuff. Uh, I would recommend Small Town Murder. It is a, a really fun show where they focus specifically on exactly what it sounds like. Small Town Murders. And just the bananas concept of like, you know, what's really fucking funny. The fact that one of these idiots would go, yeah, I think I can fucking kill him. <laughs> yeah, I think I can do that. No, I don't have any expertise in it, but I just feel like doing it. it that's hilarious. And they, they try to make fun of that. And that's where the, a lot of the comedy comes in. That's also where I try to like emulate a little bit because I, I do like the idea of Lighten it up a bit, folks. It's Yeah, so it's not just like, hey, kids, can you lighten it up a little? Yeah, for real. But yeah, highly recommend that if you guys are interested. They're a really good show. I've been listening for a while and I'm a nerd. I, I do like pushing good podcasts, just like I've done with like, uh, this podcast will kill you and, you know, and that's why we drink, you know. Well, of course, you gotta, it's like, it's the inspiration behind what we do. Yeah. You gotta share the love too, man. Like people put way good work into that and it's gotta be appreciated. Definitely. So thank you, Ashley, for hanging out with me again and letting me make you mad. Well, of course, that's <laughs> what I'm here for. <laughs> and thank you everybody for listening to this. So I will be posting some images on our Instagram at morbidmillpod. I also do post uh, when our episodes go up, so you'll never miss an episode. So please do follow us. In addition, we do have a Patreon and a Ko-Fi page. We would love if you'd give us some support. Always will help us keep the show going and help us bring the show to your vulnerable ear holes every fortnight. 
also please send us in some listener stories or some story recommendations. I would love to hear anything you guys have to offer. And the, the listener stories you guys do send in will eventually be read by Devin uh, monthly once we accumulate that many stories. So if you want to hear more of Devin's voice, please send us in some stuff. Send it in at uh, to our Gmail, morbidmillennialpod at gmail.com. And you might hear it on the show. Also, don't forget to leave us a review. It is really important. Helps us push ourselves up the chart. Helps more people see us. And we want to spread this, guys. It's a lot of fun doing it. We want more people to listen. We want more engagement from you guys. Because eventually we might be able to start doing uh, Patreon-specific episodes where we're taking requests from you guys and you guys get to have exclusive episodes all to yourselves so please consider giving us some support and thank you guys for listening please leave us a review and bye